All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, and we will be in chapter number 8 tonight. The book of Hosea, chapter number 8. And if you remember, uh, all of y'all have been here a while, and you understand the setting of where we're at. Uh, Israel was in a very difficult time. In fact, they were about to be judged uh, by the Lord, and because the cup of the Lord's wrath was full. And so he sends this prophet Hosea to the nation of Israel to tell them their fate, their, their soon future fate, uh, to offer them repentance. I, I know in, in God's uh, omniscience, he knew that they weren't going to repent. They were past repentance. He, Hosea even says that in, in an earlier text. And so uh, the judgment is coming, and he used, if you remember, he's used a series of metaphors to, to describe the state of Israel, their woeful state. Uh, he said they're an adulterous wife, they're a staggering drunkard, they're a stubborn cow, an unturned cake, uh, burnt on one side and gooey on the other. They're a silly dove out seeking peace and, and lovers who really don't love them. But in today's text... Uh, he's not going to use, he's going to use metaphors, but before he gets, begins to use those metaphors again, he's going to state their case, his case against them in specific terms. And, and uh, that's what we're going to see here as we, we look at chapter number eight, beginning in verse number one. He says, set the trumpet to your mouth. Whenever they blew the trumpet, why did they blow the trumpet? To call an assembly. And it was usually something very serious. And so he says, it's time to set the trumpet to your mouth. Uh, the Lord is going to come against you. He's going to send an army against you like an eagle. Against, uh, uh, and he's coming against the house of the Lord, against the people of the Lord, against God's own people, against Israel. And he tells them why. This is where, I, like I said in the introduction there, he's going to be very specific in his charges. He says, because they have transgressed my covenant. Now, what was God's covenant with Israel? It, it's really, I don't want to say complicated, but uh, it has various parts to it. And, and maybe we ought to stop a minute and talk about God's covenant because there's a lot of confusion as to what covenant they were under. What covenant was the nation of Israel under? If you wanted to sum it up in two words, what would that be? would be the Old Covenant, right? But the Old Covenant had various parts. Or you could say there are actually three covenants. If you, you could, there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Uh, let's break it down into three parts. I'll assume we'll, we'll say there's the Old Covenant and then there's three parts to the Old Covenant. What was the first part of that covenant? It was the Abrahamic Covenant. And what was that? That was a covenant of what? Faith. Abraham believed, it says in in uh, Genesis 15, I believe, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That was a covenant of faith. That's the kind of faith that we have as Christians. I mean, in fact, that covenant is used to describe our new covenant with the Lord. It's a covenant of faith. We believe and it's accounted to us for righteousness. That's the only way we have righteousness. Abraham was given that covenant before after the law. He was given that covenant before the law. So there was no law. So he believed and God imputed to him his righteousness. 
Then there was the covenant of the land. And, and here's where a lot of people mess up or a lot of interpreters mess up because they, they try to uh, make the land covenant somehow tied to the Abrahamic covenant. And they say because Israel doesn't have faith anymore that the land covenant has been voided. Well, that's not the case because if you read in the Bible over and over again, they are told that, that they were given the land, the promised land in Canaan, and that is an everlasting covenant. You can look in Genesis chapter 17. You can look in Psalms 105. You can look in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and various other places, and you will see that when God made that covenant and gave them that land, it was an everlasting covenant. Now, people, why would people assume that it's not an everlasting covenant? Because there was a long period of time when they were kicked out of the land. Then they were brought back into the land, they were kicked out of the land again. And so some people say that covenant now is void, and God has no more dealings with Israel. Uh, uh, that's what's called replacement theology. God has no more dealings with Israel, and, you know, they might be in the land or not in the land, but that doesn't matter because God's through with the nation of Israel. That is not true. They have been given that land as an everlasting covenant. And that's part of the old covenant. What's the third part of the old covenant? It's a covenant of law. They were given the law. They were given the Ten Commandments, and they were given the Mosaic law. And what were they told when they were given the law? Well, first of all, when God asked them, can you do this, what did they say? All you have said we will do. Well, God knew they weren't going to keep that covenant. But he made the covenant, and he promised them, when you go into the promised land, if you will keep this covenant, I will bless you. If you break these logs continually over a period of time, I will curse you. And, and so when we come here to verse number one, he says, set the trumpet to your mouth. You shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed, transgressed my covenant. That's what he's talking about. They've transgressed the covenant of law. And really they had transgressed the covenant of faith in also, because they weren't a people of faith anymore. When, you're, when you have faith, you're walking in the light as he is in the light. You're walking with the Lord in a relationship with the Lord. That's what faith is all about. And they had transgressed that covenant, and they had transgressed the, the, the uh, uh, Deuteronomic covenant. They were no longer keeping the law, the covenant of law. And so now they were going to be kicked out of the land and that was their punishment and they were told that in the book of Deuteronomy that if you continue to disobey the Lord if you continue to walk uh, in sin and in idolatry then you will be thrown out of the land for how long forever no nowhere does it say forever for a period of time we're told in the first chapter of Hosea that that one day they will be brought back into the land and they will be unified, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will be unified as one nation under the rule of the line of David. And so none of that was permanent. But man, I don't know about you, but I am awful glad I'm not under the old covenant. I'm under the new covenant. What's the new covenant? The new covenant is like the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of faith. And, and uh, 
that means that no matter what I do, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I can walk with the Lord in the light of the Lord by faith forever. Once I'm born again, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so uh, all my sins, past, present, and future have been paid for. Now, does that mean that I'm free to sin? No, I'm free to not sin. I mean, if you're a child of God and you live in sin, you're going to get spanked. We don't get away with sin because we're born-again believers and we're under the new covenant. But there's no condemnation for our sin, and that's the difference. Uh, There's discipline, but there's no condemnation. Now, what about on a national level? I mean, what about a nation? You know, I've heard people say that the United States is under a covenant with the Lord, that that covenant was made when we created our Constitution, when this nation was founded uh, hundreds of years ago. Is that true? No. The United States is not under a covenant with the Lord. But, but, the more revelation you have, the more responsibility you have to that revelation. And I believe this nation was created as a Judeo-Christian nation. And we had all sorts of revelation given to us. And because of that, and because people followed in, because we were created under that structure and under that umbrella of faith, uh, this nation has been blessed more than any other nation, maybe more than Israel, more than any other nation that has ever existed. And and even though we aren't under a covenant, any nation that continues to sin against God and rebel against God, one day they are going to come down. One day they're going to be judged for their sins. And I I guess maybe the scary thing right now is, you know, as as a nation, the United States has been blessed with so much revelation. You know, there was a time when there was a Bible in every house, you know, almost every house. Uh, there's a church on every corner, and yet we've turned from God. In fact, I mean, we haven't just turned from God. We have almost become hostile towards God. And, and judgment has got to come if there's not some kind of repentance or some kind of revival. When that's going to happen, I'm not God. I can't tell you, but it's scary to me. And, I mean, it causes me. I mean, there's, there's not many days that go by, and I'm not trying to brag on my prayer life, but maybe to encourage you, there's not many days that go by that I don't pray for revival for the United States of America. I don't pray for revival for this city. I mean, I, I think it should be at the top of our prayer list. But you pray for your children, but, man, when, if, if they, this nation goes to, to pot, your children are going to be in some difficult situations. Our grandchildren are going to be in some diff, difficult situations if there's not some kind of turning that takes place in this nation. You know, I don't know if we haven't reached the point where it's too late. We're just like Israel. We're past that point. And maybe it's time, about time that the Lord's going to return, and maybe this nation is going to go off the, the face of history in, in, in a very uh, traumatic way. I mean, that could possibly happen. But as Peter said in Second Peter, remember the Lord knows how to take care of his own. But again, it, we should be praying for revival. And in that day, he says in verse number two, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. I mean, what are you doing allowing this to happen to us for? We're the apple of your eye. We're the people of Israel. We know you. We have, we have synagogues on every, every corner. 
We have, we have the Torah. We, we were given the promised land. You took us out of Egypt. We know you. Why are you letting this happen to us? The Lord says, no, you don't know me. And here's the reason you don't know me. And look at verse number three, because Israel has rejected the good. And because they've rejected the good, the enemy will bring them down. They will pursue him. By rejecting God, they had rejected good. By rejecting good, they had rejected God. It goes hand in hand. A nation that, that, that rejects God and makes what is evil good and what is good evil is on the verge of judgment. Any nation that does that. And, and a denomination or a church or an individual that all of a sudden thinks you can, you can walk in darkness. I guess I'm on this walk in darkness and walk in light because that's what we're going to be looking at in 1 John, and I've been studying that. But, but if, you, if you live an evil life and you're walking uh, with evil people in an evil world doing evil things, you've rejected good. And, and, and you might say you know God, but you don't know God. God, I, I mean, I went to church. I prophesied. I did all of these things. And what did Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. You got to know God. And one of the ways you know God is that you're doing good. And you know what's good and you know what's evil. You know, we've reached a point in the United States of America where man, there's a foggy line between what's good and what's evil. What's evil is being made good in this country. It's really sad. Verse number for they set up kings, but not by me. He's talking about the northern kingdom here. They made princes, but I didn't acknowledge them, not any of them. Throughout their history, I did not acknowledge one of them. They were all evil kings, the Lord said. Why were they evil kings? Because when God set up the monarchy in Israel, whose line were, were the kings to come through according to God's instructions? Through the line of David. They were all to come through the line of David. But remember, after Solomon died, there was a rebellion between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, or a civil war, basically. And Jeroboam took the northern kingdom and separated them from Israel. And he went and built a golden calf. Now, why did he build the golden calf? To represent Jehovah God. I'm sure the Lord was real pleased with that. I mean, you made me into a cow. I mean, you could have done something maybe better than a cow. But they made him into a golden calf, just like Aaron and the uh, Israelites did uh, during the Exodus. And the reason Jeroboam did that, because he didn't want the people going back into the southern kingdom and worshiping at the temple and getting back into the, uh, fellowship with their southern brothers and then uniting the kingdom again. He wanted that kingdom separated because he wanted his children to rule and reign. But that was against the will of God, uh, totally against the will of God. And, and just because kings, they had kings that weren't uh, Jeroboam anymore didn't mean that they were in the will of God. They were never in the will of God because they had gone against God's instruction for their monarchy. Israel has rejected, they set up kings, I'm sorry, verse number four, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them, not one of them, the Lord says. From their silver and gold, they made 
They made for themselves the golden calf, and then that led to other idolatry. They made for themselves other idols that they might be cut off. In other words, this is what has led to my decision, the Lord says, to cut the nation off, to bring judgment upon the nation, their idolatry. Your calf is rejected. I didn't like your calf. I never liked your calf, the Lord says. It's an insult to me, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain innocence? How long until they wake up and realize that uh, I don't like their calf? That you can't set up an image of Jehovah God. He is who he is. And, and, and uh, cut yourself off from your religious roots in Judaism, which was centered where? Not in Samaria, but in Jerusalem. So God said, I'll never have liked what y'all have done. You wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't listen to the prophets. But now judgment is coming, and here's why. Because you set up this cab, you rebelled against my will for the kingdom. It should have been a united kingdom. And you still haven't figured it out. And you're, you're crying out, my God, we know you when you don't know the Lord at all. How long will you attain innocence? I mean, how long will it take before you see that the golden calf is an affront to me? You know the second commandment. I'm sure that's what the Lord was saying to them. You know the second commandment. What was the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity on the fathers and upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And this is interesting because this is about the fourth generation. And how does he describe the fourth generation? They hate me. They hate me. You know, you are either a friend of God or you are an enemy of God. You're either for me, Jesus said, or you're against me. And they were against him. And they were saying, hey, my God, we know you. I mean, I, you know, I think the same rhetorical question could be asked to the United States of America today, to all of us. I mean, how long will you attain to innocence in this matter? How long will it take you to realize that I'm not in false religions, that I'm not any, in any religion that makes me out to be something I am not? that makes my word out to be something different from what I've said in my word. That's why we have to be people of the word. And any religion that violates this word, God's not in it. That's what the Lord is saying. I'm not in the nation of Israel because they violated my word. And, you know, I'm not in any religion. I'm not in any nation that violates my word. We got all sorts of golden calves in the United States of America. When they built the golden calf, they built it to worship Jehovah. Jehovah would accept that because that wasn't the prescribed way to worship him. That was audacity to try to worship him in any other way. It is audacity to try to worship God in any other way than what he prescribes in his word. And that is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to him except by the Father. And that all the things that are 
that are an abomination to the Lord are still an abomination to the Lord. And whenever you, you go against that, you're created a different God, and God's not in that worship. He's not in that denomination. He's not in that church. And he's not in that nation. Verse number 6. For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. God, you, Finite men cannot make an image of infinite God, and especially using a finite uh, being to represent God. And God says, hey, I don't like it. I've never liked it. And the calf of Samaria is about to be broke into pieces. And he says in the next verse, he's made his case now, uh, using specific charges here where everybody can understand. If you can, it's as if the Lord says, well, if you couldn't understand my metaphors, if you couldn't see what I was trying to show you through metaphors, I'm going to lay the case out for you. He laid it out for him. And now he goes back to using metaphors in verse number seven. He says, they sow the wind and they weep, reap rather a whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce mill if it should produce mill. Foreigners or aliens, not, not aliens from outer space. Don't get all excited. It's not about aliens from outer space. Outer space. Aliens would swallow it up. What's it mean if you sow to the wind? He means if you sow in vanity vain things that are evil. If you sow to evil, for a time period you might seem to get away with sowing to evil. But there's going to come a point where there's going to be a whirlwind. You could translate that tornado. A tornado of trouble. Tornadoes wipe things out. You sow to the wind long enough and, and eventually there's going to be a tornado of trouble. You know, I've been watching it for the, since I've been saved. I guess my eyes weren't open before then, so I didn't see it. And I can't really uh, tell you what I saw before then because I was so blind. But I have watched since 1989, these last, uh, what, two decades, two, almost three decades, I have watched our country sowing to the wind, sowing vanity, evil vanity to the wind. And I'm afraid before we know it, there's going to be a tornado of trouble. I mean, I'm telling you, we're sitting on all sorts of powder kegs. China, Russia, Iran, terrorists within our own country, evil politicians within our own country, economy that's on a bubble that could collapse at any moment. And I'm not here to, to, to depress you tonight or to frighten you. I'm just here to be a realist. And, and at any moment, that wind we've been sowing to can turn into a tornado of trouble. At any moment. And the first trouble they were going to have was a famine. He says the stalk is going to have no bud. They were living in prosperity up until the last few years before they went into captivity. And then God brought a famine into the land. And so he says the stalk has no bud. And if it has no bud, there's no wheat, then it shall never produce meal. And even if you, the wheat you do produce, the foreigners are going to get it. You're not going to get to eat it. That's how bad things are going to be in Israel. And then he, I mean, 
Because the Israelites won't be there to eat it. Where will they be? He tells them in verse number 8. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles. He's, he's going into the future and talking about the time when Assyria comes down and takes them into captivity and swallows them up and scatters them throughout the land. They're going to be among the Gentiles. And what are the Gentiles going to think about them? They're going to be like a vessel in which there is no pleasure. A vessel that you hate. You ever gotten any a Christmas present from somebody that, that some vase or something that was the ugliest thing in the world and you couldn't throw it away because you could, didn't want to hurt their feelings or you hit it and every time they came you, you brought it out? That's a vessel of which is, there is no pleasure. And the Israelites are scattered into these land and nobody likes them. That's, that is prophecy fulfilled because even today, thousands of years after this was written, they are a vessel which there is no pleasure. And one of the exciting things that's going on in the world right now is the Israelites are beginning to come back to their homeland. Because they're a vessel in which there is no pleasure, they are beginning to evacuate the countries in which they are in, which hate them, and they're beginning to go to the land of Israel. They, I read an article last week where the, there were more French Jews migrate to Israel this past year than any other year in history, or since they've been scattered, this past year. Well, you can see why, can't you? When, when you got terrorists going to, to Jewish cafes and, and, and slaughtering people, and the police aren't protecting them, and they're being stabbed, and they're being threatened, and they can go to Israel and be safe. Well, I don't know about that, huh? I mean, that's a pretty scary thought, to be in that little sliver of land amongst all those nations with rocket, thousands of rockets that could come at you at any moment. There's one big difference, though. You're in that land, God's hovering over that land. And if, and if God, you get wiped out, it was your time because God's got protecting that little sliver of land. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey, actually, literally, a dumb donkey. There's another word for donkey. I'm not going to use it here. But like a dumb, you know what. They have gone, they've gone to the very nation that wants to destroy them to give them money so that that nation would love them. They've hired lovers. I don't know if how familiar you are with lovers and how much experience you've had in love. But my experience is that you can't buy love. You can't buy it. You, you, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't work on an individual level and it doesn't work on a national level. We haven't bought the love of the Iranians. I don't know if you listened to that debate last night, but there's some silly stuff some, one of those candidates said about you know, how now we are at peace with Iran. Now, man, are you what? Are, is your head in a grinder or something? I mean, where in the world can, I mean, are you blind? It, Iran does not love us. Iran wants to destroy us. We are silly doves just like the Israelites were silly doves. And we've hired lovers that hate us. The very ones that want to destroy us. Yes, verse number 10, yes, though they've hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they're going to have sorrow for a little while. 
because of the burden of the king of princes. Now, some say this is Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's talking about Tiglath-Pileser here who came down from Assyria and destroyed them. Nebuchadnezzar would have finished them off and kind of finished Tiglath-Pileser off so, and finished Judah off. So you could, it might refer to Nebuchadnezzar, but in any case, it refers to, to a king who is mightier than all the other princes in the land. And I think he's referring here to the king of Assyria because he's talking to the, to the, about the northern kingdom at this point. Then in verses 11 and 12, he says, Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars, they have become for him altars for sinning. What's an altar for? It's a place where you make a sacrifice to the Lord. It's a place to where you come to worship the Lord. And their altars had been turned into places of sin, places of abominable activities, pagan activities. Sexual activities, uh, immoral sexual activities, places where they sacrificed their babies. They're, they're no longer did they come to the altar of the Lord in, in Jerusalem. They came to these various pagan altars, and even the golden calf had become a pagan altar. Even though it was pagan from the beginning, their intentions were good, but, but, but they all were pagan at this point. And they became altars for sinning. You know what? Again, and I'm not trying to lift us up over other denominations or stuff, stuff, but when I see a denomination or a group of churches or a church ratify some of the behavior that is abominable to the Lord, they have become altars for sinning. In other words, any, any church that, that ratifies your sinful behavior is exactly what he's talking about here. It's an altar for sinning. And I've written for him the great things of my law. I've written for Israel great things of my law. But they've considered a strange thing instead. I mean, their consciences were seared to the point where they didn't even care about the law of God. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the things of the law became Strange thing, a strange thing. They're considered a strange thing to them. They even hated the law. Does that not sound familiar? When truth becomes relative, and we throw out the basic principles that whether you are a Jew or a Christian or just a human being who has the law written to some degree in your conscience, when you allow your consciences to be seared and and, and, and you can't even see evil for what it is. And man, that's where we're at. I listened to one of those candidates last night. Again, I'm not trying to get political and tell you who to vote for, but I listened to one of those candidates, candidates last night talk about his great religious faith and then turn around and talk about how it's okay to abort a nine-month-old baby because that's your choice to kill that baby. and You know, that's your choice. I mean, that's wrong. That's, that, I mean, that's murder. <laughs> and they consider that a strange thing. The law has become a strange thing because it's become, become so polluted and relative. Verse number 13, for the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he remember, will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They're going back to Egypt. For their sacrifices 
and their offerings. For the, for the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh to eat. In other words, they pretend to be religious. They go to the altar. They might go to their pagan altars, but they come back to the altar of God and they make sacrifices. They go to the synagogue. They pray. They give. But I don't accept their false religion, the Lord says. I don't accept them. In fact, I will remember their evil. He will remember their iniquity and I will punish their sins. And look at the punishment. They will go back to Egypt. Now, some people talk, think that this is about the little remnant in the book of Jeremiah that went back to Egypt and they were slaughtered in Egypt. I don't think that's who he's talking about here because he's talking again at this point in this text about the northern kingdom. And they did not go back to Egypt. Some of them were scattered down to Egypt when in the diaspora, this diaspora. But, but uh, I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. I believe Egypt is used as a metaphor. In other words, what he's saying right here is they've come full circle. I took them out of bondage. I brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a great land. And all they had to do to stay in that land was to love me. And if they loved me, they would have kept my commandments. But they, they left me for other gods. They forsook me. And now I'm going to punish their sins. They're going to go back to, to bond, into bondage. They're going to go back to being slaves. They're going to be scattered throughout the land, and they're going to be a curse in the land to the people. They're going to, people are going to look at them as cursed. That's going to be their fate, just as Pharaoh looked at them as cursed, as a vessel uh, that they didn't want. That's exactly the way they're going to be in all the places that God sends them. And here's why. Here's why. I used to tell my boys that we, had, we used to study about Hophni and Phineas and why they got in trouble. Why did they get in trouble? Because they didn't know the Lord. And every time they'd do something, something bad, I'd say, remember Hoffney and Phineas? And I'd call them Hoffney and Phineas, and they'd get really mad at me. They didn't know the Lord. What was their big sin? They didn't know the Lord. What was the big sin of the nation of Israel? They, for Israel has forgotten his maker. They've forgotten me, the Lord says. They've forgotten, the nation has forgotten its maker. They built temples. They multiplied their fortified cities. But I will send fire upon their cities and I will devour their palaces because they have forgotten me. See, they were trusted in their religion which God wasn't in their religion at all. They were trusted in their military and in their big walls that they had around their cities. You can't build a wall high enough that God can't knock it down and come in. You can't have a, a military so strong that God can't bring that military down. And you... If God's not in the religion you're involved in, then it's no religion at all. It does you absolutely no good. I mean, just think about it. This was the apple of God's eye. 
The nation of Israel, I mean, I mean, why would he bring the nation down? The very apple of his eye. Because they had forgotten him. They had forgotten him. You look around our country today, you look at all the churches that are in this city, in this country. Churches are being built every day, mega churches, big churches. You might even look around if you were an unbiased observer and you came to the United States and saw all the religious activity here, you might think, wow, there's a great revival going on in the United States. It ain't happening. I wish it was, but it's not happening. God does not inhabit buildings. God inhabits people. People who know him. People who won't forget him. And if you got a church full of people who don't really know the Lord, that church is dead. I don't care how big they are, how great, great their music is, they speak in tongues till they're blue in the face. But if they don't know the Lord, and that means they know the Lord when they come in the doors and when they go out the doors, and all week long they know the Lord. If they don't know the Lord, then they're dead. If you're an individual and you do all sorts of religious things and you don't know the Lord, your, your religion does you no good. You're dead. A nation can say it's a Christian nation till it's blue in the face, but if it They've forgotten the Lord. They're dead. They're dead. So what do we need? On an individual basis, we need revival. We need revival in this city. We need revival in this church. We need revival in every church. We need revival in this nation. If we don't get it, the hammer's going to come down. I don't know when. might be 50 years from now. I mean, they, they went through a long process before God brought them down. But again, the Lord knows how to take care of his own. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We, we do live in scary times or times so similar to those times that Israel was in in the days you wrote these prophecies. Lord, I just ask that you you inspire us all or encourage us all to, to pray for revival for this land, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our children, to pray for our relatives, our grandchildren, to pray, Lord, that, that uh, they'll know you and that uh, maybe we will see revival in these last days. We hope so, Lord. But we also know that whether we do or not, that you're, in control of our lives, you protect us, you guide us, you inhabit us. And we're so blessed to know you. Help us to share that knowledge with others. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.